Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hello, what's happening, man? How you doing? What is up? Hope you're doing well. I hope everybody is doing fine. I hope everybody is doing what they need to do using common sense to make this world a better place. Not talking about Michael Jackson, but I'm talking about doing what we need to do to make this world a better place for you and for me and the entire human race. A lot of things to get down on today in the world of sports. Before I do that, I want to give a shout out. I want to give a special dedication. I want to give a thank you. I want to give all of those things to those who have been helping this podcast, for those who are making this podcast grow, for those who have been integral parts of having this podcast, Wendell's World in Sports, continue to grow. I want to give a shout out, special dedication to my man, Big Dan of Trash Talk Sports. I want to give a shout out to my man, Pint Glass Football Podcast, Brad Fowler and Chad Smith. I want to give a shout out to my man, Brandon Collins of Valley Boys Sports. Uh, podcast. Want to give a shout out to my man Corey Harrison of Alabama Sports Podcast. Want to give a shout out to my man Logan Fields. Want to give a special dedication to William Smith of Talking Toilets Podcast. Want to give a shout out, special dedication and all the above to Jay Fenning. I want to give a shout out to my man Armando. Want to give a shout out to my man Hoot. Want to give a shout out for all of those who have been giving me reviews on iTunes. I want to give a shout out for all of those who have been subscribing. I want to give a shout out and a thank you and a special dedication for all of those who have been listening to the podcast. Eric G and the others who have been helping to make this podcast grow week after week, day after day. I promise you what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be trying my best, my best, my very best to make sure that this is the best sports podcast going to something that you'll be looking forward to when you download, when you subscribe, when you listen and all of those things in between. So I want to thank you very much for that. All right. Today in the world of sports on my podcast, Wendell's World of Sports with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. What I'm going to be talking about today, of course, is the NFL owners. They met this past Tuesday. The top headline issue for the owners, of course, was the lack of minority coaches and upper management within the franchise's organization. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell briefly gave lip service to the situation by saying this. Clearly, we are not where we want to be on this level. Um, you know, we have a lot of work that's gone into not only the Rooney Rule, but our policies overall. Uh, it's clear we need to change and do something different. Uh, there's no reason to expect we're going to have a different outcome next year without those kinds of changes. All right, so yeah, so basically, basically Goodell was talking about, you know, he expressed that the NFL needs to do better in the regard of minority hiring, the policies regarding this need to be worked on and improved. Basically, he gave another answer to the definition of insanity, which the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over the same way and expecting different results. So basically what Roger Goodell was doing as he makes 40-something million dollars a year, whether he accepts the checks this season or not, is basically what he's doing. He's being a good politician. He's saying something about an issue and saying really nothing about it. He's talking loud and ain't saying nothing, as my man James Brown would say. And it's, and it's really something, I guess, that he has to do. My, my question has always been, 
When we're talking about the lack of diversity, when we're talking about year after year, African-American black coaches are not getting the opportunities that they are deserved as far as getting a head coaching position or see if they're even available to be head coaches in the NFL. My question always has been to Commissioner Goodell and the owners are, who, who exactly are the people in charge of this issue? I mean, what are the responsible, who, who are responsible for making the, the Rooney rule better? in terms of minority coaching and getting a fair opportunity for these positions. Because my, my situation or my thinking is that, you know what, if you have the people in charge of trying to find a solution to the problem, they've been the ones who are part of the problem, well then how are those people who are part of the, part of the problem all of a sudden then going to be the ones who find a solution to that problem, which they've created? And it seems year after year, decade after decade, there really hasn't been that much progress being made in terms of minority coaching, coaches being hired, minority coaches given genuine, true opportunities for them to become coaches. And I've said it before. I've used the analogy before. I've used the comparison before. When we're talking about progress being made, I'll use the, I'll use the antidote that the great powerful, historic Malcolm X always said, hey man, if you stick a knife in my back six inches, pulling the knife out of my back three inches is in progress. Pulling the knife out six inches is in pro progress. Pulling the knife completely out of my back is in progress. Progress is pulling the knife out of my back, fixing the wound, saying I'm sorry, and then seeing what we can do to make sure that no one else sticks a knife in my back. That's progress. So we can talk about, well, you know, back in 1970, there weren't any NFL black head coaches. And now you take a look, there's four. And then a couple of years ago, there were six and it reached its crescendo. And a few years ago when there were seven and there were eight, that, that's progress, right? Yeah, that's progress. No, no, it's not progress. You know what progress is? Progress is when there's a certain percentage acceptable for everybody of being black head coaches. And no one's going to sit there and say, oh, how, how about that? That guy is a black head coach. Just like in baseball, just like with the integration of baseball and basketball and football and the NFL quarterbacks and the NFL middle linebackers and the NFL centers. I mean, nobody now blinks an eye and takes a look and says, wow, how about that? You know, in the NFL, there's X number of black middle linebackers. Isn't that something? Isn't that wonderful? No, no one really takes a look at that. No one really brings that up and say, uh, along with the black quarterback because enough progress, true progress, Malcolm X type progress has been made to where a black quarterback, if he's good enough, if he's worthy enough, if he's talented enough to be drafted number one, to be a starting quarterback in the NFL, he's going to get that opportunity. It doesn't matter what conference he's in, doesn't matter what division of football he's in, doesn't matter what school he played for, doesn't matter how many times he's been on television. I mean, sometimes it doesn't even no matter what type of person he is as a human being, he's going to get an opportunity to play uh, quarterback for the NFL and have the opportunity to be a franchise quarterback in the NFL. That's that's progress. Drafting Jameis Winston and giving him multiple opportunities when he was in Tampa Bay, that's progress. But with the NFL coaches, when we get into an opportunity where, you know, we see mediocre to bad head coaches, as Chris Rock called it, the Dave Wonstat rule, when we start seeing mediocre to bad coaches get hired a couple of more times and still continue to fail, that's when in the NFL, as far as minority coaching is concerned for head coaches, that's when we know that we'll, that we've made progress. Right now, the knife is still about four inches on, uh, in my back. And the NFL owners are sitting there talking about, oh yeah, there's a uh, knife in your back. Gee, let's have a let's have a meeting. Let's have some rules to see what we can do to pull the knife out, fix the wound, and make sure that no one else stabs you in the back in that certain situation. So, uh, 
that's always been my question when these NFL owners and these people get together and they talk about, well, we need to solve the problem of black coaches being hired in the NFL. I mean, damn, aren't you guys really part of the problem? Now, the league has been working with the Fritz Pollard Alliance Foundation concerning this matter. Now, what Fritz Pollard, what that alliance is all about, it's a membership organization that compromises, of, that's comprised of scouts and coaches, front office personnel in the NFL, as well as, as well as other sports professionals committed to equal equality in the industry. So for the NFL, they are working, I don't know how closely that they're working, but they are in communications with the Fritz Pollard Alliance, Allegiance uh, Foundation. So, you know, with the help of the, and the influence of the foundation, the league proposed this adjustment incentive. I don't know whatever you want to call it before their meeting this past week. This was first reported by the, um, this was first reported by the NFL Network. And it was a rule, it was a change, uh, it, was a, it was a suggestion to the Rooney rule in terms of minority hiring that the owners were considering a proposal that would have improved teams' third round draft picks by six or 10 spots if they hired a minority candidate for vacant GM or head coaching openings, as well as other compensation for hiring minority candidates for such positions, such as quarterback coaches, offensive coordinators, and such. The Now the new vogue way of these coaches now to start becoming really viable head coaching candidates. If we see the trend in the NFL, if you take a look at some of the hiring or the majority of hires, of NFL coaches over the past couple of years. They've all been offensive coordinators. You take a look at the league right now where Eric Bieniemy of the Kansas City Chiefs and Byron Leftwich of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they're, they're the only two offensive coordinators. So there's another obstacle. There's another useless, pathetic, ridiculous uh, excuse for the reason why, of what, what many people might try to put as a valid excuse on why black head coaches or black coaches have not had the opportunity to become black head coaches because, you know, this league has gone more toward hiring quarterback coaches, gone more toward hiring offensive coordinators, and there really hasn't been any real candidates in those positions of color to seek those jobs in terms of being a head coach. It's concerned rubbish, bullshit, nonsense, but, you know, that's the deal. So, again, the NFL Network, Network reported a couple days ago that, you know, to sweeten the the uh, the reason for a team to go ahead and to hire these guys is because of you know they could go ahead and give them extra picks and all this other stuff. Well, well, some black coaches such as Anthony Lynn and others they found that idea really unhelpful when it comes to them getting opportunities, and even some of them found it insulting. So what Rod Graves, the executive director of the Fritz Pollard Alliance, Alliance the Fritz Pollard Allegiance. <sighs> said about that feedback was some people are going to be offended by the fact that these types of programs have to be encouraged on owners to hire black candidates. But, uh, but I chose to compliment the league on its efforts and wait for further discussion because I think this is the beginning of a fruitful conversation for really advancing diversity. But the real the rule didn't pass the other day. The NFL rule stipulates that, you know, what, 24 out of 32 teams, they got to uh, vote to approve a resolution in order for this rule to go into effect. So now some of the changes that were made, so it, not all of it was doom and gloom. Okay, the most radical, I guess you could say, the most radical idea in terms of trying to improve minority coaches getting hired or getting interviewed or anything like that, that might have for now been tabled 
But there were some changes made concerning the issue. For instance, teams are now going to be required to interview at least two candidates from outside the organization for any vacant head coaching job. Woo! Now, all right, now we can go bullshit on two instead of one. There's been at least one minority, at least one minority candidate from outside their organization for any vacant offensive, defensive, or special teams coordinator job. So it looks like the Rooney rule is going to bleed even more into coordinators and other positions, not just a head coach. I guess that's something, that's some progress. Little, but there's that's something. The Rooney rule is expanded to apply to several executive positions. Also, teams and the league office are now required to interview minorities and or female applicants for positions such as team president and senior executive in communications, finances, human resources, legal football sales operations, marketing sponsorships, information technology, and security positions. I don't think we're, we're talking about security guards either. Underrated, but a very important rule change. And I think this might have a chance for the greatest impact if you're speaking about what we can do to improve the chances of minority coaches getting opportunities, genuine opportunities to become head coaches. This rule that was put in place, I think, has the greatest chance for an impact. Each of the 32 NFL teams will establish a minority coaching fellowship program. Now, the coaching fellowships are to be full-time positions, one or two years in length to provide NFL legends, minorities, and female participants with hands-on training in NFL coaching. Now that is something that I can see myself saying, yeah, now I'm not, that's what I'm really down with. This nonsense about you have to, you know, instead of you know, interviewing one minority for a head coaching position, you now have to, you now have to uh, interview two. I mean, that's, that's bullshit because they'll just do the same bullshit with two minority candidates that they did with one minority candidate. If that team has already decided on a head coach who happens to be white, what's the difference if they bring in two folks to kind of go through the motions, the kind to, uh, to, to make sure that they're, um, going right by the rules. So for me, that, that really doesn't make any sense. But two things for me that are going to be standing out, and it really doesn't even start with the head coaching position. For me, it all starts with those and the GM and the president of football operations. Until we start to have black, minority, Hispanic, Asians, Arab descents, anybody else in terms of a minority, in those positions, in terms of those who are going to be actually hiring the coaches, actually giving influence, actually giving information, actually trying to talk to the owners about why this guy should be hired, then I don't know how much progress we can really be making if we're still having these white guys trying to hire these black guys in terms of the GM and operations of football. And it has nothing to do with these GMs talking about, well, I'm a white guy, so I'm just going to go ahead and hire another white guy and I don't give a damn. But I think that if you put yourself in a position to where you're going to have a general manager or a president of football operations who's an African-American, again, who's a Hispanic, who's an Asian, who's you know any of those minorities, then he knows at the very least that he's going to widen the pool. That doesn't automatically mean, I mean, uh, the, the white privilege of those, and for those who have, you know, for those who have been living in white privilege their entire lives, what they're really scared about is basically if blacks or other minorities get into the same position that they are in, that they'll go ahead and they'll do the same practices in terms of hiring that they did, which is quote unquote, hire your own. Like, oh my goodness, we can't do that because if you start hiring black general managers and black uh, presidents of football operations, well, obviously, all they're going to be doing is hiring their black buddies. So we can't do that. So all of a sudden now, the white man who has been in position, who has been in, in this position of privilege and power, all of a sudden now, they're starting to get a little bit antsy. 
All of a sudden now they're starting to get a little bit scared. All of a sudden now they're starting to get a little bit concerned because, oh my goodness, now if we put somebody else in, the privilege that I once had and, I've been, had, and that had, I've been taken advantage of for centuries, all of a sudden now that's in jeopardy. Because now with this black man or with this Asian American or whoever you're going to put in there, all of a sudden now he is going to be expanding the uh, those who are trying to get positions for those who are going to be trying to uh, fulfill this vacancy or, or fulfill this job. But I don't think that's true. I think I think a black executive, I think a Arab executive, I think that a, uh, any executive that's a minority, he's going to do what he needs to do to hire the best person available, whether that's white, whether that's black, whether that's Jewish, whether that's whether he's gay, whether he's, you know, a, a, a Christian. I don't know what it is. So I've always felt that, you know, this nonsense about, well, you know, oh, my goodness, if you let them in, all of a sudden our roles will be in jeopardy. No, I don't think all of a sudden now that if you hire a black general manager that not only is he going to hire a black coach, he's going to tell that black coach to hire everybody else on the team, make sure all the players are black and everybody else. Or if you hire some guy of football operations that all of a sudden those who are going to be in management positions are going to be black, those who are in the football field are going to be black, and it's going to be black on black on black on black on black. That's not the, that's not going to be the case whatsoever, but we have to assuage these fears of those white folks who think that way. And you also have to make sure that you have to also let our community know that, hey, look, man, just because, you know, I'm in this position right now, just because I'm in the position of hiring folks, black community, don't think that I'm just going to go ahead and hire the first black guy who walked through the door. And if I don't hire the first black guy who walked through the door, I'll hire the second one or the third one or fourth one and ignore all the other candidates, whether they be white or any other uh, type of race or gender or creed. That's not you, you also have to go ahead and do that. Because there's a lot of black folks out there in our community who also will sit there and be like, all right, there we go. Got ourselves a black GM, payback time. I want this black, I want that black, I want these black, I want those black, I want this and that and that black. And if you can get the owner out of there, I want an owner who's black. Fuck it, let's just go for the whole deal. It doesn't work that way. If we're going to be in a position that we're going to have to be able to hire the best person available, the advantage of doing that would be that the minority person who's in the hiring position hopefully would have a wider range of folks that he can talk to, would have more of an open mind of other people that he, he can bring in and talk to before he settles on the person who's going to be able to fulfill that role that he wants to fulfill, whether it's the head coach, whether it's the assistant GM, whether it's the head scout, whether it's the offensive coordinator, whoever that is. So th those are the things that we're going to be talking about when you mention the fact that what can really be, what can really be made in terms of moving this process along of minority coaches being hired. You have to get into position those of color who are in a position to hire the coaches. And a lot of times with the GM, one of the things that we kind of forget sometimes and one of the main responsibilities that the GM or president of football operation has, he has to have a strong relationship with the owner because he's going to have to go in there and talk about, Hey, I know that you might not like this guy, but look, we need to resign him. And this is the reason why you need to trust me on this. They need to have that relationship to where that GM or that person who's making those decisions can have a relationship with their owner. The guy who's writing the checks, 
the guy who actually owns the team, he has to have the ability to go in there and say, look, trust me on this. This is the guy that you want to hire. This is the guy that you need to draft. This is the direction that we need to go in. We need to rebuild because of this. We need to keep forward and try to win because of that. That's what a GM also had to do. He had to, uh, he had to massage and placate to the ego of the owner also. So he also had to build that relationship. So not only will a black GM have to deal with these other things or a Hispanic GM or any other minority, a female GM, whoever is making those decisions, not only does he have the responsibility of being broad in his or her decisions on who they want to bring in to run the organization, those who want to bring in and the person who wants to run be the coach of the uh, football team, but he or she ha also has to have the ability to go ahead and form that relationship with the person who that owner just hired to say, look, you might not agree with me or you might not see my vision or you might not understand it right now, but you have to trust me and believing what I'm doing is going to be best for our football team. So there's a lot of things moving on. So if you're talking about hiring just a black football coach or you know, the lack of diversity in hiring black football coaches, for me, that's that's a micro subject. I think the macro subject is what can we do to get people of color in power to influence, to influence the owner, to influence the sales staff, to influence those who are writing the checks, who are those so he can have that power to go ahead and make the correct decision. You see that a lot in the NBA. You sign a jury, the general manager or the president of basketball operations for the Toronto Raptors. I mean, he can go ahead and basically do whatever he wants. He, he's, he's almost at a great Popovich, R.C. Buford level in terms of doing what he wants to do because of his resume, because of the results, because of his acumen, because of his intelligence, because of his knowledge, because of his brilliance and what he does as a basketball executive, that the owners in Toronto, they don't have, when, when, when Yasai said something in terms of might be confrontational or it might not be something that the group of owners in Toronto, the Raptors might not uh, approve of or might not think it's a good deal or something in terms of quote unquote, that's something I wouldn't do. They know that you, you, uh, you jury, has the ability for them, for him to go ahead and do that. We need to start getting more minorities in those positions so they can go ahead and do that. Because right now, if you take a look at look at it, the NFL only has four minority head coaches. Yeah, Mike Tomlin, Pittsburgh, Anthony Lynn, Los Angeles Chargers, Brian Flores, second year with the Miami Dolphins, and Ron Rivera just recently hired by the Washington Snyderskins, okay? But you have two general managers of color, Chris Greer of the Miami Dolphins and Andrew Barry of the Cleveland Browns. You have offensive coordinators, as I mentioned before, two of them, Byron Leftwich of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Eric Bieniemy of the Kansas City Chiefs. Currently, the NFL coaches are predominantly white. And as I mentioned before, the situation where, hey, you know what, if you're looking to to uh, have a path toward being hired by the NFL as the head coach. Basically, you have to be an offensive coordinator. If you take a look, about 20 current head coaches have an offensive background when they got hired for their for being a head coach. If you take a look at Andy Reid, he was a offensive line coach, but also an offensive coordinator. John Gruden, working with the Eagles, was an offensive coordinator. Anthony Lynn was the running back coach and Anthony and um, an offensive coordinator. Zach Taylor, offensive coordinator. Doug Peterson, Kyle Shanahan, Bruce Arians, Adam Gaze, Joe Judge, Sean Payton, Doug Marone, Frank Reich, Bill O'Brien, Matt Lafleur, Sean McVay. Matt Nagy, Kevin Stefanski, 
Matt Rule, Cliff Kingsbury, Mike McCarthy, all of these guys who are currently head coaches right now who I just mentioned, they all come from an offensive coordinator or offensive background. You take a look at head coaches who come from a defensive background in, in, uh, in comparison. Bill Belichick, Mike Tomlin, Jim Harb- or John Harbaugh, Matt Patricia, Dan Quinn, Ron Rivera, uh, Vic Fangio, Brian Flores, Pete Carroll, Mike Vrabel, Mike Zimmer. You know, within that group, there's a whole lot of coaches who have been, you know, uh, very good coaches. I mean, what? I mean, we really don't need no words to, to talk about the excellence of Bill Belichick. Mike Tomlin's won the Super Bowl. John Harbaugh's won the Super Bowl. Um, Dan Quinn brought the Atlanta Falcons to the Super Bowl. Ron Rivera brought the Carolina Panthers to the Super Bowl. Pete Carroll won the Super Bowl with Seattle, won a national championship and built a dynasty at USC. So Mike Vrabel had the Tennessee Titans going in the right direction. Mike Zimmer has had the Minnesota Vikings in the playoff for multiple years. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I, I've always thought that this nonsense concerning the, you know, you need to be an offensive coordinator nonsense was always a joke. Now, for over the last couple of years, I mean, the coaching hires in terms, because, you know, it's always the flavor of the month in terms of what direction you're going to be going, what direction these GMs and these owners are going to be wanting to go when they're hiring their uh, head coaches. And you take a look at a Matt Nagy, you take a look at a Matt LaFleur, you take a look at a Zach Taylor, some of these coaches who have been hired recently, they all fit the Sean McVay tree. Everybody's looking for the next Sean McVay. It's funny, when the Pittsburgh Steelers hired then 35-year-old Mike Tomlin, with very little coaching experience, the league didn't start going out trying to look for young, energetic black guys to hire for their teams. But oh my goodness, Sean McVay comes in, does an excellent job with the Los Angeles Rams at 30 years old. Now all of a sudden, these teams are looking for the next Sean McVay, which is young, energetic, offensive-minded, charismatic, and white. If you take a look at Matt Nagy, Matt LaFleur, Zach Taylor, Cliff Kingsbury, who had a losing record at Texas Tech, but he produced Patrick Mahomes, so it was like, well, let's bring him in there and see what he can do with the Arizona Cardinals. So the, Lewis Riddick was speaking on SportsCenter about this in terms of, you know, where coaches or where owners need to go when they're looking for someone to run their franchise. And what Riddick was talking about, I completely agree with. Yeah, there's there's no question about that. Look, coordinator positions typically lead to head coaching positions, unless, of course, you're a quarterback coach, which could automatically catapult you to the front of the list when it even comes to being a head coach. But there's no question about that. You need to allow upward mobility. You don't need to be able to or be you know, empowered to stifle people's progress. And that means for coaches overall, you want to have people continuing to work to lift everyone up. And for minorities in particular, they have to be allowed to ascend into coordinating positions. And the one thing I want to say about about coordinators overall is this. I don't care if it's offensive or defensive coordinators because let, let me, let, let's just talk about this. I know there's a lot of talk about quarterback coaches and offensive coordinators needing to be the positions that minorities need to get to. Look, I, I personally think that owners need to open their minds and really start looking at some of the history of some of the great coaches and where they come from and stop following everyone else's lead and thinking that you just have to copy what everyone else has to do. Mike Tomlin was a defensive coach. Bill Cowher was a defensive coach. Tony Dungy was a defensive coach. Bill Belichick was a defensive coach. John Harbaugh was a defensive coach. What do these guys all have in common? They all won Super Bowls. 
This is, it's about competency, credibility, positively impacting people. Let people ascend into the positions and then evaluate them based off of those criteria. Let's not make it more difficult by saying all minorities in particular have to become quarterback coaches and offensive coordinators in order to become head coaching jobs. What they need to be is great teachers and great leaders and you need to evaluate them as such. If you do that, I would guarantee you that people's hit rates when it comes to hiring head coaches would improve as the teams that hired those individuals I just mentioned wound up hitting big on those type of coaches as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. These owners need upward mobility and stop stifling people's progress. Absolutely. You know how he talked about how talented black coaches need to ascend to positions that will improve their chances of becoming head coaches that, you know, it doesn't always have to be an offensive coordinator or a quarterback coach role, which again is pigeon towing, which is really condensing the amount of opportunities that you have to be successful if you're looking for, quote-unquote, the next Sean McVay. Or back in the day when you were looking for the next, quote-unquote, Bill Belichick, and you plucked every assistant from the Bill Belichick tree, whether it be Matt Patricia, whether it be Josh McDaniels, whether it be uh, Romeo Cornell, whether it be Bill O'Brien, whether it be uh, oh, the offensive coordinator who was the coach at Notre Dame, and then he went on to Kansas. Oh, my goodness, the name, the face is in my mind, but it doesn't come out. Age is a biatch. I'll think about it later. But, uh, yeah, it was, it, you know, so it's always this little this little trend or this little time period where people, is always, all people are always looking for in terms of the owners and those who are doing the hiring of, you know, the next guy, who's going to be that next guy that's going to fit this guy or fit that guy or who's going to be, has a similar uh, similarities toward them. In the NBA, they did that with the San Antonio Spurs. Everybody on Great Pop of his staff was being plucked, whether, whether we're talking about Sean Marks or whether we're talking about, uh, you know, many, many others in terms of for head coaching jobs, for executive jobs. Everybody in the NBA wanted to see what they can do in terms of hiring anybody who had contact with Greg Popovich to run their basketball team or to run their uh, NBA team from a head coaching position. So, uh, Charlie Weiss, damn it. <laughs> I told you it would come down the pipe. Charlie Weiss, yes, the guy who was well, the offensive coordinator for um, um Bill Belichick, you know, so speaking of, he went to Notre Dame and they plucked him all of the, um, they plucked him off the Bill Belichick tree. So yes, so the, the sports always tends to go toward, you know, the hip trendy type of deal. And Lewis Relic is saying, no, it's not about trying to hire the next Sean McVay. It's not about trying to hire the next Bill Belichick. It's not trying to hire one of those guys. So we need to be pigeonholed by that. No, you need to go out and hire yourself the best person available regardless of where he comes from in terms of his in terms of the position coaches and all of those things you need to go ahead and hire the best leader the best communicator the best person who can forge relationships and have the and have the team believe in the direction that you're going that's the main thing everybody's sitting there talking about we need an offensive coordinator and look i'm not coming out i'm not coming with this out of my ass these are i heard that from folks who are actually been in the Hall of Fame and how they're trying to build teams and how they built teams, whether it was Ron Wolf or whether it was Bill Polian or whether it was any of these other executives. They're always talking about, you know, look, man, when you hire a coach, you're hiring a head coach. That means that head coach has to be in charge of the entire organization. 
I mean, if you hire a great quarterback coach, he just can't be spending most of his time with the quarterbacks. He has to be in meetings with the defensive coordinator. He needs to have be meetings, have to be in meetings with the special teams. He has to be, you know, building a relationship with the owners. He needs to be building a relationship with the media. He needs to be doing so many other things. The coach of a professional football team is a pseudo CEO in terms of their responsibility. So you can, you can get a guy who is an offensive genius, or you can get a guy who is a quarterback guru. You can do all those things. And yet you can kind of say you're one of your main things. One of the main reasons why we're hiring you is because we do have this quarterback who we think you can turn around, or we did draft this young quarterback who we think were your tutelage that he can become a franchise quarterback and he can become a great quarterback. And yes, the relationship that you built with the most important person on your team which should be the quarterback is highly important and maybe you should put a lot more energy or put the most or or the more abundance of energy into that than you would say the third string kicker on the on the scout team understood that but again if you spend all your time working with a quarterback and you don't have the communication skills you don't have the leadership skills. You don't have the personality skills. You don't have the person people skills. You don't have any of those things. Then it's never going to work. It's never going to happen. Bobby Petrino was hired long ago by the Atlanta Falcons because at Louisville, he was this offensive guru and he put up all of these points. But when he came to the NFL, the man had no people skills. The man was a fink. The man was a fraud. The man was a fake. And he wasn't dealing with 18 to 22 year olds who were on who were on a scholarship. He was dealing with grown men who were on contracts who had power. He was dealing with grown men, husbands, fathers, CEOs, businessmen, all of those people in terms of what an NFL player could be. He didn't have the opportunity to say, when I say jump, you say how high, because if you don't, I'll take your scholarship away. So Bobby Petrino, even though the guy was brilliant as an offensive guy, even though at the time the Atlanta Falcons needed somebody, especially when they had Joey Harrington, to go in there and see what they can do to um, uh, put up, put some points on the board and to revive their offense, to make their offense great. So he took a look and said, oh, look at Bobby Petrino. Look what he's done at Louisville. Let's bring him in. And he can do the same thing with Joey Harrington that he did with Brian Brom when he was the quarterback at Louisville. He could put the points on the board like he did at Louisville. Unfortunately, once again, Bobby Petrino might have been great as an offensive mind, great as an offensive uh, guru or anything like that, but his ability to be a head coach, his ability to relate to others was severely lacking. And that's why that guy ran out of town as quickly as he could. So it doesn't matter. John Harbaugh was a guy, not only was he a defensive guy, but when he was hired, he was a special teams coach. Bill Cowher at one time was a special teams coach. And how many special team coaches do you see in the NFL right now? How many people right now in this present day and age would take a special teams coach over a guy who's fantastic as far as an offensive coordinator is concerned or, you know, did great work with this quarterback as being a quarterback's coach. For the most part, you wouldn't see that now because the stigma is, well, I mean, he's just a special teams coach. What can he do to help the offense? What can he do to improve the quarterback? What can he do to put points on the board? And the league that's always been trending toward offense being the main reason why you win Super Bowls. Just check out the Super Bowl this previous year between Kansas City, great offenses, versus the San Francisco 49ers, great defenses. So in that situation, again, just like Lewis Reddick said, and just like other people have been saying for years in terms of hiring head coaches, you hire the best 
person available that's going to be, be able to relate to the players, to be able to relate the communication as far as a, uh, a direction and where they're going. And that's going to resonate within the players, within the coordinators, within everybody associated with that football team. The trainers, everybody else, the ball boys, everybody else. If everybody is on the same page on where you want to go, and you can execute that communication in terms of this is what I want to do. This is the way I want it to be done. Go ahead and do it. And you give the people that you hire to run the offense, to run the defense, to run the special teams, to be the linebackers coach, to be the running back coach, to be the head trainer, to be the ball boy, everything else in between. If you give them the direction, if you give them the freedom, if you give them the autonomy, if you give them the opportunity to let their skills shine in that particular regard because you are a good judge of character in terms of hiring these people when you become the head coach. Who gives a fuck if you were an offensive coordinator before or a defensive coordinator before or a special teams coach before or a secondary coach before? Who gives a fuck if you're only been coaching in the NFL for eight years or for 10 years or for five years or you're not over 40 years old or you're not under 35 years old? Who cares? You hire yourself the best person available based on their communication skills, based on their people skills, of course, based on their football acumen. When you get into a position, when you get to a level to where you're being interviewed for a head coaching position in the NFL, the football knowledge should already be there. No one should have to question you on whether you know the X's and O's or you know how to put a game plan together or you know how to execute a game plan. That, that, that should be second nature. That should be something that's already thoroughly baked in solid, solidified. If you can't do that, believe me, you ain't going to get a shot to become a head coach. Hell, you might not even get a shot to be anything anywhere in the National Football League. And it should be like that. So this stuff about, you know, well, I mean, the X's and O's and everything, that when you go into an interview in terms of does, does this guy know his stuff, that should already be not even a question. Now, does that match up in terms of his offensive philosophy, his defensive philosophy, how he runs a team? Does that match up to the direction that we want to go? Does that match up with the personnel that we have? And that's a decision that's going to come down to the GM, the president of football operations, and the owner in terms of when they're hiring. And if they see that this guy, if those guys can be moved in terms of when they're having these discussions, if those guys can be um, uh, moved in a way to where, man, if, if this guy can do this to us in terms of uh, giving us the enthusiasm and giving us the passion and giving us the uh, everything that he's got in terms of that, just think what he can do for this team. Just think what he can do to revitalize some of the players that we have on this, this team that have gone through a couple of bad seasons who are just waiting for someone to lead them. This guy's a leader, man. This guy is a leader. Let's go ahead and hire him. And again, it doesn't matter what position that he comes from. So again, as Lewis already said, thinking outside the box. Like I said, make, make it happen with Mike Tomlin. When he was named the head coach of Pittsburgh when he was just 35 years old, think outside the box. Wait a minute, this guy's been a special team coach. Wait a minute, this guy's only 35 years old. Wait a minute, this guy's taking over from a guy who's probably going to be in the Hall of Fame and Bill Cowher. Wait a minute, you're giving the keys to one of the more prestigious historic franchises in professional sports in North America to a 35-year-old black guy with limited experience in the coaching profession? Are you sure the Roonies know what they're doing? Obviously, they did. Same thing with the St. Louis, I'm sorry, the uh, Los Angeles Rams. Sean McVay became the head coach of the Rams when he was 30 years old. He was nothing more than a quarterback's coach, sometime offensive coordinator when he was with the Washington J. J. Gruden Skins. His, his last stop. Wait a minute. You're going to give a head coaching job to a guy where there's a decent 
amount of players on this team who are actually older than he is. You're actually going to give this guy the opportunity? He's never had any head coaching uh, uh, experience before? You're going to go ahead and do this? It seems like the Los Angeles Rams made the right decision because, again, they were thinking outside the box. I don't know how this is going to all end, but I'm interested to see what the Arizona Cardinals are going to do under Cliff Kingsbury, a guy who was 35 and 45 games under 500 at Texas Tech. Wait a minute. You're going to give a guy who's never been coaching in the NFL, who's been a as far as record-wise, is an underachieving coach in college at Texas Tech. You're going to give him the opportunity to be a head coach, a guy as young as Cliff Kingsbury, without the success that many other coaches had? Are you serious? Well, after one year, the jury is still out. We'll see. We'll see. It's, is he going to become a Josh McDaniel? Is he going to become a Lance Kiffin? Or is he going to, be going to become a Sean McVay or a Mike Tomlin? We will soon find out on that one. But yeah, as far as... As far as the coaching is concerned, you know, there's so many things that go into this and there's so many excuses and there's so many avenues that need to go down, that people need to go down. There's so many I's that need to be dotted and T's that need to be uh, crossed that, you know, this situation in terms of the lack of hiring from minority, it just goes year to year. I mean, you really can't, other than the fact that there really hasn't been enough black head coaches getting a sincere opportunity to get a head coaching job. But there really hasn't been one single reason why where we could just mainly focus on. There's just so many others. And it's gonna take it's gonna take some uh true, sincere, genuine thought processes and thinking outside the box and come to Jesus moments for them to change things around in the NFL so we can get to the point where we are with the NFL quarterbacks and we can get with the NFL black quarterbacks, middle linebackers, safeties and centers once taboo as far as having a black person in those positions. Now we don't even think about it because of the steps that have been made. We now need to do the same thing with the NFL head coaches. It's not black and white in terms of we need to do A, B, and C, and that'll be good. We need to do A, A and a half, B, B and three quarters, C, C minus, D, D plus, C plus, X plus, before we start really getting some concrete measures to make it, to, to make it to where black head coaches can get a shake. Here's also, before I go to a break, here's also what I want to say. Does anybody remember Jay-Z? Hello, Sean Carter, Jigga man. Remember him? Man, I tell you this, uh, Jigga, if you want to prove your sincere, sincerity to our community about making changes for the betterment of black people in the NFL, I want to hear your name. I want to hear you speak out. I want to hear you in, that you were you know, listening to meetings. I want to, that you, that you have been involved because I remember when he got hired and black folks were sitting there talking about, oh man, how can you do that to brother cap and this, that, and the other, and you just sold out and all these other things. And Jay-Z was like, no, 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 man. I'm going to be coming at it from this angle. I'm going to be coming at it from that angle in terms of what I need to do to improve the folks, uh, the, the, uh, the quality of what we need to do as far as black folks to get the opportunity that many of us are not getting right now. I'm, I'm down with that. I'm ready for that. You know, we're going to get past kneeling. We're past kneeling and we're going to be doing better things and we're going to go, be going for bigger fruits on the tree all right all right jay i gave you the benefit of the doubt i said all right let's see what you do i will be highly highly disappointed if we don't hear nothing from jay-z or he just totes the party line 
I'm going to be very disappointed. Again, I don't need Jay-Z to be coming up there, you know, up there, you know, up there throwing bombs and calling people racist and this is terrible and we need to go back to Africa and, you know, you know, uh, Marcus Garvey lives and all this kind of stuff. I don't need Jay to be doing that, man. I don't need to have Jay become a, a freedom fighter or anything like that. But if we're speaking about diversity, if we're speaking about a situation that's affecting those minorities, people who are black in the National Football League, Jay-Z, yeah, it's about time that you step up. Here's your opportunity. Let me know that you're existing. Let me know that you're still living within this within this space that you're in right now, which is NFL, which is the NFL football uh, uh, universe. Come on, man. Let me hear what you've got to say concerning this matter. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down in the NFL. A lot of things going down with these meetings. A lot of things going down with the lack of diversity that the NFL is tackling right now. How about that? NFL diversity tackling. <laughs> let's see if he can, let's see if the NFL can sack this problem of lack of black head coaches getting jobs so we don't have to turn over for another solution to see how we can get this done. That would definitely be a 15-yard unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, the podcast. So glad that you could be with us. So I was sitting here and I was thinking about this, especially when they were talking about um, the teams that hire a black head coach or a black GM or a minority of that stature could get extra draft picks and do all those type of things. And, you know, again, it was messed met with trepidation it was met with some folks being assaulted even hurtful all of these things and i started thinking to myself if i was going to be in charge of this if i was the czar of the nfl in terms of what they need to do to try to fix the solution and i wanted to go to the extreme i wanted to see i just wanted to drop a bomb man in terms of uh what i can do to really shake things up you know what i'm saying not just in the national football league but in the sports world in general what would I do in terms of improving the hiring practices in the NFL so more minorities could get hired? This is what I do. What I would like to see added as far as improving the hiring of minorities is that for every five head coaches that have been hired by an NFL team, one of them must be a minority. So for instance, and, and oh, by the way, interim, interim coaches don't count. Under this rule, under my rule, interim coaches wouldn't count because what would happen would, would be if this thing went into place, I mean, it's not, unfortunately, but under my rule, if it went into place saying that, wait a minute, if, if you're going to be hiring the next time, if you've already hired four head coaches and all of them have been white, the next time that you hire a coach, this one has to be black. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. 
Don't even bring another other white guy to be hiring, to be interviewed for the job. The next coach, if you've hired four white guys in a role, regardless of the time period that you've had these coaches, the, the, the amount of time that these coaches have been coaching, I don't care if you fired a coach after one year, or I don't care if you fired all four of those coaches after 20 years, the next coach has to be a black man. Do not try to circumvent the rules, for instance, by having these franchises, by having these organizations that, for instance, if you had a coach that you knew you were going to fire at the end of the year and then you were going to go ahead and have to hire a black guy, what you would do was by week 12 or week 13, you would hire, you would fire the, the white coach, bring in the black coach as far as an offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, linebacker, coach, whatever. You would put the interim tag on that black head coach for the final two or three games and say, yep, there we go. So, so we fulfilled the rule. We, we hired a coach. We hired a black coach. It might have been for only two or three games, but we hired a coach. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. A coach must be hired for one full season. Another one. So don't be hiring a coach, a black coach, after you've hired four black, white coaches, then you hire a black coach because of the rule that I just implemented. He's there for spring training and three games into the uh, preseason, and then you fire him because he just wasn't the right guy, so let's go back to hiring white guys again. No, we're not doing that either. If you hire a black coach, that coach has to stay for the entire year, no matter how bad it gets. I don't care if it gets Hugh Jackson and Cleveland bad, 0-16 bad. You are going to have that coach. Now, after that first year, you can do whatever you want to with them and go back to hiring white coaches if you want to for the next four times. But for every five coaches that you hire, you have to hire at least one black head coach during that time frame in terms of when you um, hire these coaches. So, for an example, if this rule were, were to be taken place, you take a look at a franchise like the Atlanta Falcons. They've had five head coaches since 1997. Dan Reeves with the coach from 1997 to 2003. Jim Mora with the coach from 2004 to 2006. Bobby Petrino stayed one year in 2007. Mike Smith took his place and went from 2008 to 2014. And now Dan Quinn is the current head coach. If you guys fire Dan Quinn at the end of the season, if Arthur Blank fires Dan Quinn at the end of the season, under the Wendell Wallace rule in terms of hiring minority coaches, you would have to hire a minority coach. I don't care if he's black. I don't care if he's Hispanic. I don't care if he's Asian. I don't care if he's Arab. I don't care if it's a woman. I don't care what it is. You will be hiring a coach, a minority coach. No if, ands, or about, or about it. So teams that would have to hire a minority coach if this rule existed not only would be the Atlanta Falcons. How about this? It would also have to be them Dallas Cowboys. And I think if Jerry Jones, and I think if Jimmy Johnson ever got word that guess what Jerry Jones is going to have to hire a black man to be the head coach of his football team. I think this is what Jerry, I think this is what Jimmy Johnson would say. How about them Cowboys? Yeah. Yeah. Special education going out to the great Tony Bruno on that one. But if you take a look at it under Jerry Jones, the Dallas Cowboys, they've had five head coaches since 1998. Chan Gailey from 1998, 1999. Dave Campo, remember the Dave Campo era, 2000 to 2002. Bill Parcells was there from 2003 to 2006. Wade Phillips, 2007 to 2010. And then Jason Garrett from 2010 to 2019. You know, most of these 
organizations, most of these franchises that I'm going to mention in terms if they were under this rule, that they would have to go ahead on their next hiring to hire a black head coach. You know, most of these organizations that I'm naming never have had a black head coach. The Dallas Cowboys has never had a black head coach. Now, Tom Landry was there for 29 years and Jimmy Johnson was the man. So the first two coaches that the Cowboys had, they really didn't need, <laughs> they really didn't need a black coach, a white coach or any other kind of coach. They had themselves two excellent Hall of Fame, one legendary coach already. But, you know, as far as the Dallas Cowboys are concerned, they've been around, what, since 1960s? Never had a, uh, never had a black head coach. Same thing, same thing with, uh, well, the Buffalo Bills had a black coach for a little bit, but they would be another team that would have to go ahead and have a, would have to hire a black head head coach if this rule was implemented. Because if you take a look at the five coaches that the Bills have had since 2006, Dick Jerome was there from 2006 to 2009. Chan Gailey got another job, got another opportunity as a head coach for an NFL football team. He was there for three years, 2010 to 2012. Doug Marone was there from 2013 to 2014, current head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Rex Ryan, Rex was there from 2015 to 2016 after he got bounced by the New York Jets. And then Sean McDermott, the former defensive coordinator, who's doing a good job with the Buffalo Bills so far. He's there from 2017. He's been there since 2017. So I can imagine the Buffalo Bills, man, I guess they would hold on to Sean McDermott forever, right? Because they're like, man, you're going to try to tell me that under this rule we have to, we have to hire ourselves a black guy if we... If we decide to fire Sean McDermott, unless he goes over 16 for the next four years, let's just hold on to this guy. Jeez. The Jacksonville Jaguars. Five head coaches since they were born, since they came into uh, conception in the NFL in 1995. Tom Coughlin was there from 1995 to 2002. Jack Del Rio. 2003 to 2011, Mike Malarkey, 2012, Gus Bradley, 2013 to 2016, and Doug Marone, again, getting a head coaching job. He is the current head coach of the Jaguars. The Los Angeles Rams, who's never had a black head coach, the five coaches since 2000, Mike March from 2000 to 2005, Sean Linehan, 2006, 2008, Steve Spagnuolo. The former defensive coordinator for the New York Giants. I don't know if he came before or after he took the, after the uh, uh, St. Louis, then St. Louis Rams job. He was there from 2009 to 2011. Jeff Fisher, 2012 to 2016. And now currently Sean McVay doing a great job. He has a chance to be coaching that team for the next 20, 25, 30 years. The way that guy's going. The New England Patriots. Another team that would have to hire a black head coach. They never had a black head coach in their franchise's history. They've had five coaches since 1990. Rod Rust. Remember Rod Rust? I don't either. He was there in 1990. But I do remember Dick McPherson, the guy who was at Syracuse. He was like 60-something years old. And they were like, that's a good that's a good idea. Let's bring this guy over to the New England Patriots. Didn't work. He stayed from 1991 to 1992. Bill Parcells came in, led the Patriots to the Super Bowl. He was there from 1993, 1996. Pete Carroll. Hooting and hollering and yipping and celebrating from 1997 to 1999. And then, of course, the GOAT, the greatest, the one of the only, Bill Belichick. He was there from 2000 to the, uh, to the present. The New Orleans Saints, another team that's never had a black head coach. Five head coaches since 1981. Those guys better hold on to Sean Payton if my rule was implemented. Because if you take a look, Bum Phillips was there from 1981, 1985. Jim Mora, 1986 to 1996. Mike Ditka, 1997 to 99. Jim Haslett from 2000 to 2005. Sean Payton now the coach, 2006 to the present. I don't even count the year that he was suspended 
for uh, by the league in 2012. That doesn't count. So New Orleans would have to be another team under my watch. Look at all these teams that I'm naming that haven't that have been coaching or that have been hiring coaches for this long, and not once have they hired a black head coach. As I mentioned before, New Orleans, 1991, the Cowboys, 1995, all these teams, basically you're looking at over a 20-year stretch for some of these guys, and they still haven't gotten themselves the opportunity, or they still haven't put themselves in the position to hire a black head coach. Under my rule, where you would have to hire at least one coach within the five that you hire, that would change in the mind. Again, you can wait till the fifth time, you can make it as far as the first time. As far as hiring a coach, when the cycle starts, you can hire a black head coach the first time, second time, third time, fourth time, but you're going to hire one within five within five head coaches. So if you're something like the Cleveland Browns who fire head coaches, it seems like every two or three years, I don't know, man. You could go through the four coaches that you have within eight to ten years. The fifth time you would be hiring a coach, he would be some type of minority. So the one thing that's interesting, though, if you take a look, if you take a look at it, because I mentioned the fact that they had Jim Mora, not, not the son, but Jim Mora, not Jim Mora Jr., but Jim Mora, the coach from 1986 to 1996, and then you had Mike Ditka replacing him 1997 to 1999. So you're thinking about 13, 14 years of having Jim Mora and Mike Ditka as coaches. And I guess you could say during that time, without question, without argument, without debate, in terms of coaches who gave the best rants is concerned, I don't care about baseball with Lou Pinella. I don't care about the NBA. I don't care about, again, going back to baseball with Bobby Cox, who seemed to get thrown out of baseball games for the Atlanta Braves every 15 games. The best rants, the best diddly poos, the best why do you cares, the best Earl Weaver type meltdowns and shouting and screaming and letting their emotion flow as far as the sports is concerned, as far as head coaches are concerned in sports. From 1986 to 1999, the winner, without question, without doubt, is the New Orleans Saints with Jim Mora and Mike Ditka. Well, what happened was that second game, we got our ass kicked, or the second half, we just got our ass totally kicked. We couldn't do diddly poo offensively. We couldn't make a first down. We couldn't run the ball. We didn't try to run the ball. We couldn't complete a pass. We sucked. The second half, we sucked. We couldn't stop the run. Every time they got the ball, they went down and got points. We got our ass totally kicked in the second half. That's what it boiled down to. It was a horse performance in the second half. Horse I'm totally embarrassed and totally ashamed. Coaching, we're all, all, our coaching did a horrible job. The players did a horrible job. We got our ass kicked in that second half. It sucked. It stunk. What do you want to know? Come on. Or I'm going to go in now. So if you don't... What? Doesn't matter which one run. There'll be a quarterback that'll be named next week that'll be the starter. There's three quarterbacks on this football team. Whichever one starts, starts. Whichever ones don't, we'll back them up. Period. Cut and dry. It's nobody's concern but ours. Nobody's. Next. Injuries from the uh, game. Talk to the trainer. Next. Mike, why are you in such a bad mood? What do you care? Okay. If you were two and seven, you'd be in a bad mood too. What next? Mike, is this more like a training camp type practice as opposed to a regular season? Yes. Next. Not very much fun, is it? No? No. All right. I'll see you guys. That shit is something else, ain't it? We ain't do diddly poo. We sucked. We absolutely sucked. <laughs> Jim Mora 
before those, before you start asking, why didn't you use the playoffs? 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 I just hope we win another game. He did that when he was in Indianapolis. He had some pretty good rants on Peyton Manning, too. He got to the point where Peyton Manning was like, hey, look, man. Uh, Peyton, <laughs> Peyton Manning with the ownership was like, hey, look, Jim. Um, you got to get this motherfucker out of here because if he goes on television again after a game and starts going off on me again, I'm going to take this football and then I'm going to shove it down his throat and then pull it out his ass. I don't know if Peyton Manning actually said that, but I'm just saying, though, I mean, it was one of those where it's kind of like, yeah, um, Jim, we, we got to let you go. So they went from Jim Mora to Tony Dungy, complete opposites in terms of their, the way they express themselves in public. But yeah, Jim Mora, Jim Mora was a hell of a coach, too. He did a great job, a great job uh, resurrecting the uh, New Orleans Saints back in the day where they had Ricky Jackson and they had Bobby A. Bear and they had a really good team with those guys and they made the playoffs a couple of team a couple of times. Jim Mora was a damn good coach, but yeah, his uh, emotions, wearing his emotions on the sleeve was awesome. And then Mike Dicka being the ultimate bully, right? I mean, Mike Dicka being Mike Dicka. I, I always just thought, and of course it's like, that's just Iron Mike being Iron Mike, baby. I guess if you're a certain age and a certain skin tone and a certain gender that you can get away with it, if you have the public figure, if you have a public, uh, you know, if you're known publicly, if you reach a certain level, that you can act like that, that you can behave like that, like you can talk to people like that, and it's kind of like, yeah, that's just good old Mike being good old Mike, I mean, you know, they're just telling it like it is, right, hey, there you go, you know, double question, so again, why do you care, he's being honest, you know, it's like the whole thing with Michael Jordan, right now, Michael Jordan can treat people like shit, and people still... Um, people still um, uh, make excuses for it because that's just the way he is, right? So, I mean, it's, I, I would love, you know, with me being a, a substitute teacher in a Clark County school, school district, I would love sometime to behave like that in the classroom with some of, some of my students. I never would because it's low class, it's bullying, it's immature, it's something that will get me fired. So, of course, I would never do that. But come on, teachers. Come on, educators. In fact, some, come on, parents. Don't you ever want to go Mike Dicka on your kids? Don't you ever want to do that every once in a while? Like, you know, I come into a classroom. All right, my name is Mr. Wallace. I'm substituting today. The assignment's on the board. Go ahead and do it. Kid gets up to go to the bathroom. Hey, hey, where the fuck are you going? I'm going to the bathroom, Mr. Wallace. Sit the fuck down. No, you ain't supposed to be going to the bathroom until 10 minutes after the bell is rang. Sit your stupid ass down, bitch. What the fuck are you talking about? Damn. Yeah, what's up? Back there. The, the, the funny looking guy. What, what do you want? Uh, excuse me, Mr. Substitute. My name ain't Mr. Substitute, Mr. Stupid Ass. Mr. Wallace. Get it right. What do you want? Is our assignment due at the end of the class? Why the fuck do you care? I just took a look at your grade. You ain't going to do the shit anyway, right? Not unless you're going to try to improve your grade from an F minus to a solid F. Just sit there and shut the fuck up. Yeah, next. Yeah, you over there. What do you want? Mr. Wallace? Yeah, what? It, it, can we work with a partner? Yeah, you know what? Your dumbass better work with a partner because you're probably too fucking stupid to do the damn thing by yourself. Right? Leave me alone. I'm going to be on the computer. I've got some work to do. Leave me alone. I'm going to be walking around the classroom. I'm going to be eavesdropping on your conversations when I get bored because I don't have kids. So I want to hear what the young folks are talking about. Try to keep me a little bit up to date. So don't mind me if I'm kind of walking around, just kind of meandering, that type of thing. I'm just seeing to keep y'all in straight and everything like that. But just shut the fuck up, do what you need to do, and don't bother me, right? Do I got everybody's attention? Does everybody understand? Does everybody get my drift? Comprende? Understandio? Damn. 
I mean, could you imagine a classroom? Could you imagine having that Mike Ditka attitude in a classroom? Could you imagine having that type of attitude toward your son? Hey, son, what the fuck do you want? I mean, could you, <laughs> could you imagine? I mean, you know, I mean, unfortunately, some people do have those type of attitudes, and those people are called asshole, losers, pieces of shit. But uh, so that that's basically my that was basically my Mike Ditka in in a classroom full of kids. They do, they do try to do that shit too, you know. Oh, you get the substitute gives them an inch, but oh no, these kids want to take a mile on you. Kid gets up, that didn't, didn't even ask me, and you know, just kind of signed the names, just signed your name on the paper, took the um, took the bathroom pass, started walking out the room. I'm like, excuse me, where are you going? <laughs> oh, I was going to go to the bathroom. Oh yeah, well you know you're not supposed to be leaving the classroom until ten minutes after the bell rings. And believe me, man, when ten minutes hits, you can leave. But as of right now, you know, since I don't want to get fired, you gotta, you gotta wait. Oh, oh yeah, oh oh yeah yeah. You didn't know that, huh? How about that? <laughs> Blowing the mind there. <laughs> How did I get off on that tangent? Oh, but basically, so yeah, getting back to the Rooney Rule, or getting back to my rule here on the podcast Wendell's World in Sports with your host Wendell Wallace. That would basically be my deal in terms of implementing a rule to where you can improve the chances. Well, of course you would improve the chances of of uh, black folks and minorities being hired. I mean, like I mentioned before, the New Orleans Saints, the New, the New York Giants, again, they would be, the New York Giants had never had a black head coach. Since 1997, their five head coaches have been Jim Fossil, Tom Coughlin, Ben McAdoo, not Bob McAdoo, Ben McAdoo, Pat Shermer, and Joe Judge. Seattle's never had a black head coach. They've had five coaches since 1992. They've had Tom Flores, Dennis Erickson, Dennis Erickson, wow. Mike Holmgren, Jim Mora, Pete Carroll, the Tennessee Titans have never had a black head coach. They've had Jeff Fisher, Mike Munchak, Ken Wissenhunt, Mike Malarkey, and now Mike Vrabel. So that makes five head coaches since 1994. So that would be my deal. You would have to hire, again, I don't care where you hire them, within the five coaches. After the five, you know, you could, you know, this rule would start... Um, next season or this season for the upcoming 2020 season or it'd be the 2021 season since all the coaches have been hired and such. So I would say for only for those teams who I just named, your next head coach has to be a black head coach. Now those other teams, they want to go ahead and hire their coaches next also. If there's, if there's another team who's two coaches removed from hiring a black guy, if they want to wait till the fifth time they have to hire a coach to go ahead and get themselves a black guy or they or the fourth time or the third time or whatever. It doesn't matter to me. But within that five-year frame, you have to hire a black head coach and you have to keep him there for 16 games, no matter how bad it gets. No matter if it gets Adam Gates' bad with the New York Jets next, uh, last season. You have to keep him around. But there'll be other stipulations. And this would also apply in terms of having to hire a black head coach or a black person, a, a color, uh, a minority. This would also go for um, offensive coordinators and, and uh, quarterback coaches. The league, within the next three to five years, I would be it would be mandated that the league must have a minimum 15% offensive coordinator and co- quarterback coaches being black or being or having a minority. 15%. It's not too much to ask, right? Within the next five to seven years, I would say that the league minimum, 20% of the general managers and presidents of football operations would have to be minorities. 20%. That's not too much to ask. And if you're talking about what's the definition of a minority, go to the website minorityrights.org. Org. It would be African Americans, Latinos, including Puerto Ricans, Asian Americans, Arabs, other uh, Middle Eastern Americans, Native Americans, Native Hawaiians, and other Pacific Islanders and Native Alaskans. 
those would be considered hiring acceptable hirings of minorities and it would also include women in that def definition too so for Jen Welter uh, 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 Welter who was the first female coach in the NFL. She was a defensive coaching intern for the Arizona Cardinals during her, during training camp at that time for 2015, or Katie Showers, who's an offensive assistant coach with the San Francisco 49ers since 2017. Make them proud. You know, make, make them proud for these coaches to do the right thing. Because eventually there's also going to be women who are going to be more than capable of being coaches in the NFL, head coaches included. So I think that's a situation where I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm not talking about in a couple of years, but I bet you within the next 10, 15, 20 years, luckily the way that women right now are starting to take charge and women are forcing themselves to have opportunities and men are forcing to recognize that women in terms of positions where mainly the stereotype was because they're women, they didn't have the acumen, they didn't have the ability, they didn't have the knowledge, they didn't have the talent, they didn't have the intelligence to succeed at those positions, women day by day are knocking down those barriers. So there's still too much prejudice. There's still too much ignorance. And to think that, wow, a woman, football, men's football, tackle coaching, a tackle football, a woman being a coach, especially when the stereotypical, when you think about a stereotypical NFL coach doesn't mesh with our thoughts and feelings about what a quote-unquote, how a quote-unquote woman should act like, right? I mean, my goodness, if you had a woman who act like, uh, who act like Mike Ditka or act like Bill Cower or, you know, acted like some of these NFL coaches acted, you know, you would be calling them women dykes, right? Oh, she's got to be a lesbo. Look at the way she acts, this, that, and the other. We're, we're, we're still fighting that ignorance. We're still fighting that stupidity. We're still, as a society, as a country, as a nation, as the planet Earth, we're still fighting that stereotype. I'm still fighting it myself. I'm still every day trying to learn and trying to grow and trying to become more educated and trying to become a better person and trying to become more mature when it comes to those type of things. So I love myself in that group. I'm not saying that, oh, I'm Mr. You know, I'm Mr. Down with women rights and whatever, and I understand the woman, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm, I'm still trying to overcome some stereotypes that I've had ingrained in my being for 50 something years or for at least 48, 47 years. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get over those. I'm still trying to find a new way of thinking and in the right way of thinking. But yeah, so it's going to take some time. But I, I, I think and hopefully that women can start becoming, start the process of becoming head coaches by becoming coordinators and position coaches and everything like that starting in the next five to seven years to where 15, 20 years from now that a woman can be the head coach of a football team and she doesn't have to look as attractive as Goldie Hawn in Wildcats. So, you know, those are the things that uh, hopefully down the road that I'm looking for. So when a woman gets hired, when a black man gets hired, when an Arab gets hired, when an Asian person gets hired as a head coach, that it's the same thing as when a football team drafts a quarterback who's black, who drafts an offensive center who's black or any of those types of those stereotype things that I've been talking about throughout that podcast. One of the things here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace, that I was thinking about before we go to a B-R-A-E-K break is the fact that, you know, one of the things that we always hear when we're talking about minorities being hired or the reasons why, and I think the old, stale, out-of-date, still true in some regards, but I think 
that's been a little bit played too much is the, well, you know, these owners don't want to hire a black guy because they want to hire someone who looks like them or has more something more in common with them. You know what I mean? I can understand maybe the, you know, the owners who really, you're talking about multi-billionaires, they ain't hanging out in too many black communities. They probably aren't hanging out with too many black folks. They're probably not going to be in a position where they're a minority in terms of they're going to go through a, into a room full of minorities to where they're, they're going to be the one that's going to be looking around saying, hmm, no white guys here. Okay. All right. This is going to be fun. So I'm quite sure that those guys haven't been in that position. If ever, they haven't been in that position for a long time. So I can understand the fact that I can understand that one thing where, you know, owners want to hire someone, you know, maybe just a little bit more who looks like them. I can understand that. But in terms of having who have the same similarities or, or have more in common, let me tell you something, man, that is some bullshit. That is some nonsense. Let me tell you, multi-billionaires ain't got nothing in common with others except other multi-billionaires. I don't care if you're black. I don't care if you're white. I don't care if you're Christian. I don't care if you're Jewish. I don't care if you're Hispanic. I don't care if you're Arab. I don't care what you are. A male, a female, I don't give a damn what you are. Multi-billionaires have nothing in common with, <laughs> with, with other folks. When it comes to that situation, the only thing that the owner who's a multi-billionaire again has in common with the coach that he's hiring is that he's white. That's the only thing. That is the only thing. A lot of time in terms of the age difference, it's a lot, it, it, the gap is there. When you're speaking about just relative life experiences, experiences, experiences that, you know, it's, it's completely different. The where, the avenues and the ways that that coach became the where he was at this point of his life is a lot different than the way that multi-billionaire owner who's hiring him, that he went in completely different avenues. So it always made me laugh where it was like, yeah, you know, these owners hire these white guys instead of these black guys because they have more in common with the white guys than they do black guys. No, man. Let me tell you something. Me and Michael Jordan, we ain't got nothing in common except that we're black we're, and we're both pretty good looking. That's the only thing that we have, and we're—I don't even say basketball. That's the only thing that we have in common. I don't—I don't understand Michael Jordan's life. I don't—I mean, I—I I could watch that documentary fifteen thousand times. I—I I don't understand what it's like to be Michael Jordan. It's, it's, Michael Jordan is a billionaire. Michael Jordan lives in a world that I don't comprehend, that I don't get, that I just—I can't even fathom. So it's like, hey, Michael Jordan's going to hire me because, you know, being a black guy and him, well, me being a black guy and him being a black guy, I mean, you know, we have similar things in common. I don't, we, we, we both like Anita Baker back in the day. I guess we both like Janet Jackson. I guess maybe that's something. But other than that, I mean, what, I don't have anything in common with Michael Jordan. Don't believe me. I have more in common with guys such as uh, John Wexler. I have guys, I have more in common with guys like David O'Neill, these other white guys who I know. I have more things in common with those guys than I do Michael Jordan. So it's like this nonsense about, oh yeah, you know what? One of the reasons why these owners hi hire these white guys. Yes, I understand that. That point is well taken to where, you know, he looks similar to, her, to him in terms of skin color is concerned, but that don't mean fucking shit. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, any similarities is concerned and like, oh yeah, well, because he's white, obviously we have this in common, that in common, these in common, those in common, maybe white privilege at a 
completely different level because of the type of money that they make. I mean, millionaire is still a millionaire. Billionaire is still a billionaire. But for the most part, I found it, humor, I found it uh, humorous and comical when they were talking about, that's one of the reasons why black folks do not get the uh, opportunity to become head coaches because these guys that are doing the hiring, mainly these rich white owners, are finding more in common with their uh, white, uh, with, the, with the white folks than they do the black folks who are, who are trying for a job. Ha, 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 ha on that one. World in Sports. I'm your host, Wonder Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Man, I, I wanted to say before I move on, when I was talking about the similarities between Michael Jordan and I was talking about we're both good looking, you know, I really don't judge men that way. Hey, come this, that, and the other. But, you know, I, I, I mean, you know we're both black, this, that, and the other. But I tell you, you know, I guess the only reason mentioning the fact that, you know what, we're both good looking is like, you know, I mean, how many times do I have to tell people, do I have to tell the young ladies when I'm walking down the street no, I can't get my older brother's autograph, Denzel Washington's. I can't get his autograph for you. He's not my brother. I'm not his younger brother. No, no. Same thing with Will Smith. I'm not his younger, better-looking brother. Leave me alone. Good Lord, have mercy. Can't can't walk into the food store. Can't walk into a restaurant. Can't go on the beach. Can't go anywhere in life without having these 32 to 38-year-old women coming up to me talking about, oh, look, it's Denzel's younger brother and better looking brother. It's like, man, I tell you, unbelievable. But it's just, I, I need to do a documentary myself. You know, I just feel that, you know, here I am trying to do this podcast. Here I am just trying to live life. Here I am trying to be the best Wendell Wallace that I can be. And it's, 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 a, it's a challenge every day. It's a challenge every single day because I tell you, I'm trying to have people, especially the ladies, especially the beautiful ladies, especially the young ladies. I'm trying to let them know that there's more to me than just the beautiful, attractive, sexy face and a great-looking body, okay? Could you women please start taking me serious? I'm sick and tired of every time I go around, people are, women are looking up at me up and down, up and down, Googling, ogling, all of the drooling. It's just... The first couple of years, it was fine. You know, first couple of years, it was great. But man, you know, you get sick and tired of being just someone's object of just sexual perfection, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm so sick and tired of being a sex object to these young, beautiful, gorgeous women. I mean, enough already. I've got a brain. I've got a heart. And that heart hurts when you don't take me seriously, when you just think of me as something but some sex toy. Someone that you want to just romp with. Someone that you just want to have uninhibited sex with. It just hurts my feelings. Because I'm a man. I'm a man of talents. I'm a man who has more to offer than just a beautiful face and a fantastic physique. Come on. Give me a break. 
This live is brought to you by Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. Now, back to reality. What's going on, everybody? What is happening? Just a little joke for a little levity here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Hey, what's going on with Cam Newton? What's going on with Big Cam, the Los Angeles Chargers? I thought he's still a free agent. We don't know exactly when he's going to sign. There's some situations where he might wait till near training camp if the NFL schedule uh, is is not going to be affected by the coronavirus. But this is a situation where, you know, Cam Newton still hasn't been signed yet. I thought by now he would be signed. The New Orleans Saints signed Jameis Winston. We don't know what's going to be happening with the Pittsburgh Steelers. We don't know what's going to be happening with the Jacksonville Jaguars. But as of right now, Cam Newton is still unemployed. He put out an Instagram video of him working out. So he seems to be relatively healthy. He seems to be roaring, ready to go. Now, we don't know his contract demands. We don't know what he's going to be expecting, what he wants from a team in terms of him starting, in terms of him sitting, in terms of him trying to earn a starting position. We don't know exactly what that's going to be. We don't know if he's going to be looking for a team where he could become the starter for the next three, four, five years, or this, or is he going to sign just a one-year deal, see what he can do, and then move on from there? I guess life and other things will dictate those terms. But as of right now, again, Cam Newton is still unemployed. I thought one of the places that he would go, and many people thought, that he would eventually sign with the Los Angeles Chargers. But head coach Anthony Lynn was uh, on CBS radio this past weekend, and he gave his reasons on why Cam Newton is not a member of the Los Angeles Chargers. Absolutely. You know, Cam's a, a tremendous quarterback. Um, he's, he's been MVP of this league. He's, he's, he's led his team to the Super Bowl, you know, uh, and, and he's healthy now from what I hear. So, uh, Cam's going to be on somebody's roster. He's going to help somebody win a few games. But, yeah, we did, we did take a look at that for sure. Was there a reason why you didn't um, end up bringing him in and signing him? Well, I mean, I, I feel really good about the quarterback room that, that I have. You know, with Tyrod Taylor, Easton Stick, who's a guy that a lot of people don't talk about. But, you know, he was, uh, I think, Division One, Double A. He won, like, Three national championships, you know. It was like fifty-one and one. Uh, he's, a, he's a hell of a leader. He's a hell of a professional. Uh, and I, I believe he has a bright future in this league one day. But with him, Tyrod Taylor, knowing that we had an opportunity to get one, picking six in the draft, you know, uh, all those, you know, came, all those decisions came into a play when, when talking about camp. So yes, I guess you can see from the audio, he gave Newton his props and respects by naming his accomplishments. He was the MVP of the league, led Carolina to the Super Bowl. He mentioned that reports say he's healthy. He says he's been on a. He'll say that he'll be on a roster. That he'll be a positive member of a team that's winning football games. The way Lynn was just going ahead and saying all this stuff, it was almost like you know he was just doing that just to deliver the eventual bad news for those who thought that the Chargers should assign Newton. You know, have you ever been in one of those deals where, you know, whether you're getting fired from a job or being laid off or getting or your girls breaking up or your guys breaking up from you? It's like, you know, you're 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 on the receiving end of bad news, but to soften the blow, they just talk about how wonderful you are, how it's great it's been, how you're a great guy, how you're a good person, how you're a good worker, that you'll bounce back on your feet in no time, that you're gonna make somebody very happy and, and all those kind of things but you're fired or you're laid off or I want to see other people you know you, you ever get that type of thing so when someone starts talking about hey Mr. Wallace can I see you in my office please yeah man what's up well first of all I want to say that you are a great guy 
And your work here has been commendable. You've worked hard. I don't think anybody can doubt that you have been a dedicated worker and a hard worker. And we think that you're a great guy. We think that you're a talented guy. We think that, you know, we think the world of you. We really, really do. And this decision wasn't made quickly. This was made with a heavy, heavy heart. And after going back and forth and deep, deep consultation and deep thought and prayer and many sleepless nights, it's like, all right, man, you're firing me. Jesus, fuck. Are you kidding me? Same thing with, you're a great guy, Wendell. You're going to make some girl really, really happy, and she's going to be so lucky to have you. Like, well, damn, bitch, I wanted to be with you. <laughs> Don't do this to me. That was the same thing Anthony Glenn was doing with um, his situation with Cam Newton. Cam's a great guy, Super Bowl MVP. He'll be on a roster pretty soon. He'll be a valuable member to a team. Well, if he's all these things, why didn't? why aren't you with the Chargers? Why didn't you sign him? He's the former MVP. Now he's healthy. He led the team to a Super Bowl. He'll be playing. He'll be a good quarterback, no doubt about it. You're still going to go with Tyrod Taylor? <laughs> so, you know, the reason, you heard the reason, though. You heard the reason why they didn't sign him. Those positions were already filled. Tyrod Taylor, Easton Stick, and Justin Herbert. You know, he talked about the accomplishments of Easton Stick. I mean, you, hear, you hear Lynn go on and on about him. He's the fifth-round draft pick. In uh, 2019 from North Dakota State, you know, um, Lynn was talking about, yeah, he went 51-1 and in college. He shows great leadership. He's a true professional. He's a great guy. So what he's trying to say is he's also going to be a great backup quarterback in the league for like 12 years. He's going to get the, um, he's going to get the, uh, you know, the really nice uh, Jason Garrett. Hopefully that he can latch on once we get rid of him. Hopefully he can latch on with a team with a really good quarterback and he can be there and not be a threat and be that guy who's going to help him out and get him ready for games and be his eyes from a different location and from a different angle and from a different perspective. And, you know, he's going to be the guy to when the starting quarterback has some issues in terms of what's going on that he can go ahead and vent to the backup quarterback and he's going to make sure that the starting quarterback isn't going to feel threatened and all those type of things. When, when Anthony Lynn was mentioning all of these great things about Easton Stick. That's basically what he was saying. He's going to be one hell of a backup in the NFL. He's going to make a boatload of money. He's going to get a nice pension. He might go into coaching afterwards and all of those good things. Look, passing on Newton, you know what this really does? If you're a Los Angeles Charger fan, you know what the message it sends to you? It's the fact that, you know what? It shows that the job security that, that Anthony Lynn and GM Tom Telesco have, pretty solid. Pretty good. They're willing to play the long game instead of doing the Bill O'Brien game. You know who the, what the Bill O'Brien game is, right? We'll go ahead and we'll get Larry Tunsil and we'll trade a whole bunch of draft picks. We'll go ahead and we'll make a ridiculous trade and trading DeAndre Hopkins for David Johnson, who's washed up as a valuable member for a team that can win a that could be an be an elite team and basically all those things. So, so Bill O'Brien is trying to do everything. Bill O'Brien is acting like a guy where if he doesn't win. This season or next season, he's gone. But I don't I haven't been reading the tea leaves down in Houston, Texas, about the job security of Bill O'Brien. He does have the dual role of being the GM and the head coach, and his GM duties are basically definitely letting down his ability to do the job as a head coach and become successful. But if you're Dan Quinn of the Atlanta Falcons or some of these other guys who might be in jeopardy of losing their job if they don't do well, a lot of times a uh, Cam Newton in a situation like the Sandy, like the Los Angeles Chargers, if there was a coach in there that might be thinking about, you know, I have to win this season or I have to do something dramatic or else I'm going to be out of here, they would go ahead and they would get Cam Newton. They would go ahead and they would sign Cam Newton because of all the 
quarterbacks that are available right now on the free agent market, Cam Newton gives you the best chance of win, best chance to win because as Lynn mentioned before, the 2015 MVP leading them to the Super Bowl, blah, blah, blah. So if you're a coach who's desperate and trying to win this season, then you would go ahead and, and sign Cam Newton. You don't go ahead and you don't put the ball in the hands of Tyrod Taylor until Justin Herbert is ready to uh, play. And while mentioning the great professionalism and the winning percentage of each, each stick in one double A football. So it's, it's interesting to see that again, Bill O'Brien went ahead and made some moves for him to win this season in four or five years. That's going to be looking pretty bad because of the moves that Bill O'Brien made. The Los Angeles Chargers took a look at this and said, you know what? We're not going to be Super Bowl contenders soon. We're not going to be Super Bowl contenders for 2020 or 2021, maybe even 2022. That's not happening with Patrick Mahomes in at the quarterback for Kansas City right now with the team that's constituted in Los Angeles with the Chargers. Hell, they don't even have a true stadium to play in. So if you take a look at the Chargers schedule in 2020, their opponents would be the AFC West, the AFC East, the NFC South, and the fourth place AFC division divisional finishers. So you're going to have games for the Chargers against Cincinnati and Carolina, Tampa Bay, New Orleans, Atlanta, New England, Buffalo, Jacksonville. They're not winning a Super Bowl this year. Now, I know there's, there's always a team that many people sit there. They've had a terrible season the year before. They wind up sometimes making the Super Bowl, sometimes making the playoffs, sometimes turning your entire season around, i.e. the San Francisco 49ers of 2019. But from my guesstimation, that's not going to be happening with the Los Angeles Chargers. So Cam Newton as your quarterback for the Chargers really doesn't make the, you know, doesn't make the Chargers any closer in terms of being an elite franchise to where they can go ahead and make their moves. Cam Newton is a better quarterback with a quarterback than Tyrod Taylor. But Cam Newton doesn't fit the plan, the idea. From what I can guess, I haven't been in any of the coaching meetings, but what I'm going to guesstimate looking from afar is that signing Cam Newton is not, wouldn't be the uh, prudent thing to do for the Chargers and what they want them to do moving forward. Again, is he better than Tyrod Taylor? Yes, but Tyrod Taylor also is a guy who understands the situation. Look, Tyrod Taylor, just like when he was with the Cleveland Browns a couple of years ago and when Baker Mayfield was the first pick in the draft, but Tyrod Taylor knew that his time as a starting quarterback was going to be limited. He knew eventually that Baker Mayfield was going to be taking the starting role from him, whether it be in week 14, week 12, week 8, week 6, week 2. He knew that eventually it was coming. You don't draft a quarterback that high for the most part and have him sit, especially if you were Baker Mayfield and the things that he did in college. Same thing now with the Los Angeles Chargers. Tyrod Taylor knows that he's not the long-term solution at the quarterback for the Los Angeles Chargers. He knows that with Herbert coming in, it's just a matter of time this season that he goes ahead and he'll start again, whether that's in December, whether that's in November. The plan is to have Justin Herbert be the franchise quarterback. Tyrod Taylor knows that. Now, Cam Newton is a guy who's built to be a starter. His accomplishments dictate that he is a starter. The fact that he's been a franchise player, a leader in a locker room, dictates the fact that his role that Tyron Taylor is filling wouldn't work for him, I don't think. Now, maybe he tumbled himself. Maybe he looked at himself in the mirror. Maybe the situation for him dictates to where he's like, well, I guess now, at this point in my career, maybe the 
impact or maybe the situation that I'm looking for doesn't exist anymore. And maybe I need to change my perspective. Maybe I better change my chi to get me into a position to where I can accept a position that Tyron Taylor, Tyron Taylor has right now. Maybe that's the point. I don't know. I don't know. We'll kind of see about that with his contract demands and all these other things and how much money he's looking for and all these type of things. But again, I, Cam Newton is not the guy that I would take a look at if I were building a plan that I think the Los Angeles Chargers are building. So we're going to be, I guess the lookout for Cam Newton is still there in terms of where he's going to be playing, what team he's going to be playing for. But those opportunities are dwindling as we speak right now. And it might not reopen again until near training camp, if there's even going to be a training camp sometime in August. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So doggone glad to be with you. Let me uh, let me end with this. You know what? I'm going to save the whole Michael Jordan thing for a podcast in the next couple of days. I am going to save you guys, man. No three-hour podcast this time. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'll keep this a little bit short today because got a little got out a little bit late in terms of it being Wednesday. I wanted to put this out yesterday, but you know, life happens. So I'm going to put this out today, and by Friday, I'll go ahead and put my stuff out about my thoughts and feelings about the last dance with Michael Jordan and all this stuff about now with him and LeBron comparing him and LeBron and what does it mean and what kind of person Jordan is and all this beef now between Scotty and Horace Grant and, and Jordan and all this other stuff. Oh boy. Oh boy. It's just exhausting. I'll give you all of that on uh, the next couple of days, but I'm going to end this podcast with the news that guess what? Tom Brady and his amigos, they're working out. They've gotten together. He's getting the band together. They were practicing. Now, let me see here. What's the story that I'm looking for? Yes. Yes. Tom Brady worked out with his new Tampa Bay Buccaneer teammates for about two hours in early morning drills at Tampa Prep School on Tuesday. These photographs, the photographs that were taken by the Tampa Bay Times, it shows that Brady was wearing a helmet and shoulder pads with an orange jersey. Oh, but wait a minute. Not not jersey number 12. Bum, 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 bum. Oh, my goodness gracious. But... According to the newspaper, Brady displayed solid arm strength and directed many of his new receivers walking through routes at times to show where on the field he liked having his targets make cuts in the nine, in the 7 and 9 a.m. session. Getting out there at 7 a.m. to work out, huh? Ooh, Lord, I guess when you're making that type of money, though, I'll do it. Uh, some of the folks that attended the uh, workouts included, of course, Mike Evans and Scotty Miller, a couple of running backs, Titan Cameron Brayton, and O.J. Howard, quarterback Ryan Griffin and Blaine Gabbert also were on hand. Now, what about the social distancing, Wendell? I mean, are they going to get on Tom Brady about that like they got on him, like they got on Dak Prescott and Des Bryant and Ezekiel Elliott when they got in trouble for taking the picture of them doing that type of stuff? Or are they going to do the same thing with uh, Antonio Brown and Lamar Jackson when, they, when those guys were working out? Well, a league spokesman, I'm glad you asked that too. A league spokesman said that it's fine for Tom Brady to conduct workouts with teammates as long as they are following the recommendations and guidelines of state and local authorities and medical experts according along with the NFLPA guidelines. So as I mentioned before, look, Lamar Jackson, Ben Roethlisberger have conducted workouts with their skill position players during this time period. So nice to see Brady out there. 
getting done. And it also signals the fact that, you know what, every time we see something like this going on in terms of now the facilities are going to be starting to open, you heard some of the press conferences with the mayors of New York and L.A. talking about, you know, sports can resume pretty soon in June and all that kind of stuff. It makes me hopeful that there's a possibility that the NFL can start on time. Now, it's not going to be like we know the NFL that we've known all our lives in terms of the fans or anybody else and how they're going to conduct this, but just like the UFC, just like the AEW and WWE in terms of what they need to do to put on a show. I think that the uh, NFL could go ahead and do that. And I'm also thinking that, you know, by the time we hit September or by the time we hit late August, there's a situation where, and this I guess this is all conducive also if the NFL or if the NBA comes back also and all those type of things. If Major League Baseball is going to be playing as such and what the outlook is going to be for college football. But I think there was a time where it was like, you know, these leagues didn't want to be on the bad side of PR by, you know, look, we have the ability to go ahead and we have the ability to go ahead and do this testing and this, that, and the other. So while the average everyday, everyday Joe doesn't have the avenues, doesn't have the ability to go ahead and do these things, we do. So it's kind of like in your face type of thing, like those leagues were facing that type of backlash. I think by the time, and I don't know what's going to be happening with the testing and everything by this time, uh, the NFL is thinking about coming back. I think the way that things are going right now, I think it's almost like, hey, look, if, if you have to hog, if you have to grab, if you have to, to, you know, take the majority, if you have to do all those type of things to get football back on the field, do it. Do it. We'll work out our own things. By that time, I think the erosion of folks wanting to stay self-quarantined and wanting to have the type of lifestyle that we're doing right now because of this virus, I think by August, I think people are just going to be saying, fuck it. If I get it, I get it. Ignorantly, irresponsibly, whatever. And I'm not saying everybody, but there's going to be a more of a groundswell to be like, look, man, I mean, you know, I'm at the point now where I got to get some normalcy back in my life. I mean, be, me being a hermit and all those type of things, I can't do this shit no more, man. So I think normalcy for a lot of folks means football being played on Sundays. College football being played on Saturdays. Now, college football there's a whole another discussion right there because you're talking about students on campus and you're talking about student athletes and you're talking about not professionals and all those type of issues. So that's another different situation that they had to deal with. But again, depends on what happens with the NFL, uh, with the NBA. Depends on what happens with Major League Baseball. You could have a situation where, damn, it could be what August, and we still don't have any sports. And if it gets to that situation, it could be like, you know what, man, NFL, just go for it. Just do what you do. So anytime I see a situation where Tom Brady is out there with his gang, with his fellas, with his boys, with his homies, with all his good folks out there doing what they need to do, it's a signal that things are going to get a lot better before they get a lot worse in terms of just the everyday, in terms of getting back to normal. And when you hear again, the fact that the NFL is slowly starting to try to get things back to normal. Again, there won't be any OTAs. I don't know if there'll even be any... Um, uh, your traditional training camps. Well, there won't be any traditional training camp because you know there ain't going to be any fans to go up there and watch those guys play. And I don't even think that there's going to be the traditional training camp of that in that regard. But, you know, when you see stuff like this, it makes you feel good. And what do I take away from Tom Brady showing great arm strength and all of this kind of stuff? It's May 20th, and he's out there playing against no defenses. Big 
fucking deal. <laughs> you know, that's great. That's wonderful. It's great that again, it's not only, not only is it important for Brady and Roethlisberger and all these other guys, especially Brady though, since he's going, since he's moving teams. While while it's important, you know, to go through the route tree, the passing tree, and this is the way I want it, and this is the way I need it over here, and this is the way you run your route and everything. While that's really important, what's equally as important as the ability for these guys to get together and hang and learn about each other and what are their likes and what are their dislikes, and for Brady being the leader of that team, I mean, who can he push? Who can he cajole? Who can he have to pat in the back? Who can he kick in the ass? I mean, those are some of the things that they can learn when you're speaking about doing these drills and going out between seven and nine and doing these things, who can I go ahead and yell at and kind of give a mean face to? And which one am I going to have to put his arm around and be like, Hey man, all right, come on, let's do this. Let's do this. Right. We need you. Let's go. This, this, that, and the other, who can I, you know, who can I clown with? Who can I pal with? Who can I hang with? All of these type of things. Tom Brady's 42 years old. And now the other side, the receivers and the running backs and the school position players are also in that position to where, okay, now what's Tom Brady all about? From all I've heard about Tom Brady is he's the goat and this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. Let me go ahead and learn the human being, Tom Brady, so I can go ahead and start establishing a relationship that way to where it can be advantageous when I get back on the football field when the game starts. So good thing in terms of that is happening. All right, man, I am done. What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? It's... Oh, an hour and 40-something minutes. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. So, as I mentioned before, my, my next podcast, which is going to be coming out in a couple of days, I'll be talking about um, Michael Jordan, The Last Dance. Thankfully, this will be the last time we'll have to be talking about Michael Jordan. He can go back to being a sorry owner for the Charlotte Bobcats and do all this other stuff, hang out with his beautiful wife and his wonderful kids and his wonderful life. And we can get back to, I don't know, maybe he's talking about athletes who are playing in this century. Hey! All right. So I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I want to thank you very much for supporting the podcast. I want to thank you very much for, in supporting the podcast, you're supporting me. As I mentioned before, I'm going to do everything humanly possible I can. Each and every single podcast I do is just a little bit better. Love the push that you guys give me. Love the criticism that some of y'all give me because it makes me work that much harder. So keep it going. Keep it coming. Keep the enthusiasm for the podcast flowing. And I will do the same. Wendell's World of Sports. Wendell Wallace. That's me. Give me some music and get me out of here.